so now we're we're at the point where we can there's a lot of things that we can do to try to slow it down but we can't stop it um so our people at stanford hospital uh, in conjunction with people at john Hopkins, basically said well we've had some success with using siblings that are not high percentage uh, high percentage compatible and um, basically, would, would you be willing? Absolutely, right? I mean, this is this is my brother. This has been my my running buddy, my best friend. You know, since he was born, um, we're less than two years apart. And if I gotta miss the game, if I gotta whatever, if I have to take two weeks off, this is what I'm gonna do. This, this is gonna help save my brother's life. Absolutely, there's no hesitation. In November of 2020, I saw the ESPN special of Stanford University head football coach, Coach David Shaw, and his brother Eric's battle with cancer. It was at that point I knew we wanted to share this incredible story, so we were finally able to make it happen. So without further ado, Stanford University head football coach, Coach David Shaw. Coach Shaw, appreciate you joining us on the, uh, on the Underdog Podcast. Yeah, good to talk to you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I know I uh, saw your story um, about your brother, which we'll touch on here in a few minutes, over the football season last year on the ESPN feature. And I looked at my wife. I was like, got to get him on the show. So we were uh, we were able to make that happen. So as, as we just said, man, appreciate you uh, for joining us. Um, my pleasure. So <clears throat> 2011, let's go back to what we consider one of your underdog moments. 2011. You land your dream job at your alma mater uh, at Stanford. Um, but in the same breath, there was also um, some things that happened within, you know, your family and your brother, um, which is why, like I said, we wanted to have you on. One of the reasons, of course. Uh, can you take us back to 2011 and kind of how those events kind of transpired and unfolded? Uh, yeah, with respect to my brother, it was one of those things where um, most people you hear skin cancer, and you kind of shrug it off, you know, um, put some cream on it, you know, it'll go away or get it cut out and just move on. Um, so that's kind of the initial reaction, like, okay, it's, it's not a big deal. And we're kind of looking for causes that like nobody else is affected. Is this in the water? Is it, you know, it's not, it's not just from the sun. Um, and then after a while, you kind of realize, okay, no, this is this is real. This is not topical. It's not on the outside of the skin. It's actually on the inside of the skin. And there was that moment that was kind of like, oh, this isn't this isn't small. Like this is big. This is inside of the skin. This is this is throughout his entire body. Like, how, what are we going to do about this? So, you know, you go down the typical paths of radiation and chemotherapy and kind of going through all these difficult things and you know this is my my baby brother and uh you know but he's being strong he's doing you know going about it and no 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 big reason to tell a lot of different people um because once again it's still skin cancer um which is you know in in my mind at the time in most people's minds now it's kind of a lesser one of the cancers um and then uh you get to the point where it's just the stuff isn't working I'm like, okay, well then, what's what's what what do we do? And I said, well, we better find something because if we don't, then he's going to die. And uh, and that just that those two worlds crashing together of skin cancer isn't a, isn't a big deal to skin cancer is cancer. Um, it is the big C. It is dangerous. It is it is something that <clears throat> you have to aggressively attack, and and not everybody makes it back from. Um, 
And uh, that was that was a hard, difficult moment for all of us. And we had family meetings with the doctors and said, okay, we don't have a lot of time left. We have to start talking about, um, you know, transplants, bone marrow transplants. And um, so that that's kind of where all of that stuff started. And, and in context, you know, as a, as a football coach, you have to compartmentalize, right? Like when I'm with my team, I'm with my team. When I'm at home, I'm at home. And uh, never the two worlds should meet uh, to a certain degree. But um, so I, I never thought of it as my story. It was my brother's story. Um, so I didn't bring it out to, 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 to everybody um, uh, and, uh, and try to continue to do my job and then support my family uh, when I could. Yeah, and as Calvin said, just to put it in perspective, most of our listeners know, uh, obviously you have a national brand with Stanford and yourself having success being 90 and 36. But more importantly, what I learned in my research, how, in my opinion, how good of a person you are with your brother, Eric Shaw, has mentioned what he needed uh, was a blood transfusion in, I guess, a simplistic form. And you can probably touch in more of the specifics, but you became blood brothers, right? I have a brother and, and you, like, you, uh, you know, it was a great, and those that don't know how hard it is to go through any job, let alone a college football season. A lot of that stuff was going on during the season. So take us back into that, maybe that moment of time where you're obviously leading a program like Stanford in the, in the PAC 12 and on a national level, making BCS runs, making runs really at the national championship um, and going through this, what kind of explain what happened there? So you get to the point where we, he needs to have the, the bone marrow transplants and um, <clears throat> national database. And, and here's, here's what's difficult um, to be an African-American um, and looking for comparable tissue. Um, there are not a lot of people that donate. So the, the, the pool is really, really small. And there, there are 10 basic markers, and you want to at least have 8 out of 10. Um, 10 out of 10 is perfect. That's usually a sibling. I think I was 6 out of 10, so I wasn't a great match. Um, so they opened up the database and looked around and found found two 8 out of 10 donors. Um, the first one didn't work. So they went back to the second one, and the second one had, had pulled their name out of the registry. So, gosh, now we only have one. And we went back to that first one again and said, can you donate again? Yes, I can donate again. Um, donate again. Boom. Didn't work. So now we're, we're at the point where we can, there's a lot of things that we can do to try to slow it down, but we can't stop it. Um, so our people at Stanford Hospital, uh, in conjunction with people at Johns Hopkins, basically said, well, we've had some success with using siblings that are not high percentage, high percentage compatible. And um, basically, would, would you be willing? <laughs> Absolutely, right? I mean, this is this is my brother. This has been my my running buddy, my best friend. You know, since he was born, um, we're less than two years apart. And if I got to miss a game, if I got to whatever, if I have to take two weeks off, this is what I'm going to do. If this is going to help save my brother's life. Absolutely, there's no hesitation. Um, thankfully, there was a a process by which one of the processes they actually have to take a needle, right? And I'll, I'll tell you how long this needle has to be. Mm to go into your, into your hip and get down into your bone marrow and, and suck out bone marrow. And I was bracing myself for that. Uh, but they said, no, we don't have to do that. Basically, we're going to give you medication that's going to make your bones overproduce. And here's one of the two things that just completely freaked me out. One is that 
bones are solid, right? Like that's what I thought my whole life. But what happens is your bones can actually can actually overproduce and actually push things into your bloodstream. So in order to have enough uh, of these stem cells to collect, they have to give you medication to make your body overproduce. So all of these these stem cells are actually coming out of my bones. What happens when that what happens when when that process is going on is you get really really sore. So I'm one of those guys, right? Uh, a we go from drill to drill, yell at the guys, hey, run from drill to drill. Like, I can't run from drill to drill. Like, I'm blowing the whistle to ever make everybody run, and I'm kind of doing this kind of half-jog thing because my ankles, my knees, my hips are just really, really sore because I had to take this medication for multiple days to make my, my body overproduce. And then uh, I think two days before the, the next game, um, I have to go in for about, about eight hours. And this is the next thing that kind of freaked me out is get an IV in one arm, an IV in the neck, in the other arm, and basically have them cycle out my, every every ounce of blood in my body. Wow. Right? So my heart pumps, blood mm. comes out, heart pumps again, more blood comes out, and after a while, the blood, they, they take those stem cells out, and then the blood comes back in my body. So for eight hours, I'm watching movies and watching this blood come out of my body and come back in my body, two different, basically two different colors. Um, and uh, so that's how they, they, they collected all of that. Uh, modern medicine is unbelievable. Um, there's always the chance with any uh, with any of these um, transplants that the body rejects it. So, of course, the first 48 hours are critical because not only might it not work, it might also honestly kill him faster. So doing getting, collecting that for me was one thing, which I still say I played a small part in that. The doctors were phenomenal. And thankfully, my brother's body... After a couple of days of nausea, his body started accepting because they had to drain all the blood out of his body. So now we not only we, we blood brothers, like we are exact same blood brothers. Like his, <laughs> right. You take his blood out, you take my blood out, and it's the same. Um, and uh, thankfully, his body accepted it, and he's been in remission, knock on wood, ever since. And um, we're we're eternally grateful for all of those medical professionals that helped us in that process. What? was your brother's message to you? Obviously, you know, he won't, it's all, nothing else matters, but saving his life. But what was his message to you? Um, you know, with, cause of course he respect to what you do as your profession, as anybody would, you know, everyone never wants to make it about themselves. Um, you know, but what were kind of the message and, and words that he said to you as you were kind of going through this and you said, you know what, I'll do whatever it takes. Well, I mean, obviously he was, he was grateful and I just kept saying, I mean, you can't thank me. Like, I, this is, I have to do this. I mean, I, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is so important um, that we'll, everything else gets pushed aside. Um, and I mean, he, he had some really difficult days to where, you know, he had to contemplate life and, and many of us are never faced with that. We can kind of contemplate it, but to comp- contemplate it to where, it's a short, short period of time where I might not be alive after a while. Um, pretty soon here, thinking about his children, thinking about his wife. Um, so we had some, some pretty deep conversations, and, and I think we still have some, some more coming down the road because I think it took a while for him to really grasp that, um, to really grasp what, what losing your life right in front of you looks like. Um, but uh, just the fact that how much we care about each other and the perspective that we all have now, because we all say it, right? Family's the most important thing. And then we go around and do all those other things and tell your family to kind of, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But 
to, to be put in that position to really have to say, no, family is the most important thing. Um, and then whatever we can do to be there for each other is what we have to do. Now, how did Coach Shaw, how, relating that family is the most important thing and how that brought more self-awareness, like you said, that I guess the closeness to death for your brother, how did that change uh, maybe your work-life balance with, with your, your coaching career or did, how did that change you and impact you as a person? Well, even before this, in my favorite word, you know, as a kid, you can have a favorite word. You're not supposed to have a favorite word as an adult. Uh, but my favorite word was has always been perspective. And uh, that became even more so after the situation to where college football is big. Um, it's, it's crazy. It's out of control, but it's awesome. Um, but you can't lose perspective. Like you cannot dominate every aspect of our lives. Um, it, it has to be something that we do that we enjoy, but we can't lose perspective on those things that are more important. Your faith, your faith, your family, um, your own personal health. Um, those things have to be monitored and taken into account so that you can enjoy uh, the other things that we put um, our time and effort into. So you have your, you have your, your blood family, your brother that we talk about. You also have your football family as being a head coach and, and, and a manager, as you say, and leading the program. But um, I want to go back to um, it's documented that you almost didn't want to become a football coach, uh, but you got an opportunity <laughs> and He's yeah. just—he's ninety and thirty-six at Stanford. Yeah, he didn't even want to be a football coach. The, the rest, <laughs> the rest, kind of. But can you take us back to uh, to those early days of when you didn't want to become a football coach and how that really, how your uh, your mindset changed? Well, because a couple things are at play here. Number one, I'm a coach's kid, and I was born in San Diego, where my parents are from. Um, we moved to northern Arizona, northern California, moved to Arizona, Oregon. Michigan, and that was all before my senior year of high school. So, like, you move around a lot, and I was fine with it, right? I, I was I was okay. Um, I didn't envision doing that to my family when I did have a family. Um, I loved sports. I loved football. Um, I wanted to really get into business. I wanted to own my own business, whatever that was. You know, I kind of wanted to, to, to do something like that. I was That's where I was, I was headed, and never even a consideration. Um, I was fortunate to have the same offensive system my entire time at Stanford. Uh, I started with Bill with uh, with Denny Green, who was a Bill Walsh disciple. He was played coach receivers for for Bill Walsh, and then Bill Walsh. So I had the same system for five years. So what happened was, by the time I'm a fifth year senior, all the freshmen coming in, if they didn't feel like asking the the coach a stupid question, they would ask me. So I would answer all the questions. I would tell guys. I would correct them on the field. And they started calling me Coach Shaw. And I would say, stop calling me Coach Shaw. I'm not a coach. I'm not going to coach. Like, that was my job, my dad's job. It's not going to be my job. I'm going to do something else. And uh, and I got internships at, at Stanford. We have unbelievable internships. I inter- interned in, uh, in, in the financial world for two summers, and it was great, and I loved it. Um, and that's where I was going. And uh, after I graduated, I just wasn't quite ready for a tie. You know, I wasn't quite ready to sit at a desk. I wanted to do something else first. And uh, I got a call from a guy that was a graduate assistant for my dad uh, in the 70s. And he said, hey, I've got a position, uh, I've got a coach's assistant position open up here in Bellingham in Western Washington. Um, not a lot of money. It's, it's stupid hours. Um, but, you know, it's not a, a quote-unquote real job yet. 
And I said, you know what, let me give this a try. And my mom and I had been on the same page, right? I'm not going to coach. And so the day that I told her, I said, you know, I'm going to try this. Like she just, I remember, and I'll never forget her looking. She's like, at, they had this, this staircase that was halfway one way, then turned halfway. She's at the midpoint of the stairway. And she just said, do you remember our lives? Like, do you remember what we went through? Are you, sh- you're going to do this? And then she, she asked, she asked that question. She didn't wait for an answer. She started crying and she walked up the stairs. Um, and I was like, you know, I, I want to try it. And it wasn't going to be a long-term thing for me. It was going to be something I played with before I went to business school. And the first day on the grass, I said, this is me. Like, this is me. I can't escape this. I can't run away from this. Like, this is who I am. Um, I'm making $5,000 this year. Not a month, not a week. I'm making $5,000 for the entire year. And I love it. This is it. So it was just that moment. And you, you, I know if you've heard other people say that too, when you find something that is just you, uh, it, it's like dropping a fish in the water and watching them swim away. And that's what it was. And so um, I didn't get into the profession for fame. I didn't get it, get in it to, for money. I get it because it was me. I loved it. I loved being able to engage with student athletes. And even that first year, what I was getting teased for the year before um, by the by the younger players, I'm now helping guys. I'm now assisting them. And any teacher and any real coach, some coaches I don't believe are real coaches, even if they are quote-unquote good, any real coach, they get unbelievable satisfaction at teaching somebody something and watching them master it and then watching the satisfaction on their face. Like that is still the core of what we do. Um, and, and I don't know if all coaches truly understand that and appreciate that. That's great. And, and not only do you get in coaching, so making that $5,000, I believe at Western Washington, then you start to work through the NFL, then you come back to San Diego. And then when Coach Harbaugh, uh, Jim Harbaugh takes the Stanford job. My guy. So we've got a big blue blue fan here. Um, by the way, he was a wide receiver at Stanford. And better really than good. me. Yeah, better, he was than, better me. than me. Just, just not, want to put yeah, that out we there. We can throw that out there too. <laughs> but so <clears throat> where I want to get to is another underdog moment. My my opinion in the career is you go back to your alma mater as offensive coordinator, quarterback coach, I believe. And, um, you know, you guys were 1-11 in 11 or something of that sort. And you have to turn the program around. I have a quoted here or something you talk about. Bow to no man, bow to no program, right? And you believe you can be both great football players and also be great student athletes or have great minds and you believe in teaching over winning and and really developing student athletes can you go through how uh you and coach harbaugh and then yourself has sustained excellence in building a program at stanford well i think that was the that first quote that you gave was this was the seminal moment really in 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 turning that team around um anybody who knows jim harbaugh he doesn't lack for confidence. Um, and, but there's one thing about taking guys that, and I remember watching the film, right? They were one 11 before we got there. And I remember watching the film and saying, these guys should have won six games. They should have been to a bowl, a bowl and they were one in 11. And a lot of it had to do with confidence. A lot of it had to do with, with, with making plays at critical moments. Not just make it plays during the course of the game, right? And because on that team, on that 111 team, was a future All American in Toby Gerhardt, was a future Hall of Fame player in Richard Sherman, um, was was probably about six NFL players on this 111 team. And 
the what Jim did when we first got there, that bow to no man, bow to no program, walked in and said, we're going after USC. And everybody kind of looked around like, uh, no, they're, they're national championships every year. Like, we're not beating USC. We'll make it close. And Jim's phrase, which I'll never forget, was, if you don't think we can win a national championship here, then get out of the room. Leave. I will, I will grant you permission to go anyplace else. Just leave here. And he was dead serious. So that idea of taking a talented group that didn't have enough confidence and saying, you know what? First and foremost, we're not going to look to go from, from the 10th Pac-10 team to, to the 5th. We're shooting at number one right now, starting today. And that mentality was was built throughout the, the program. Um, and, and Richard Sherman says it, and a lot of people said it different ways. Richard, I love the way Richard says it. was like, hey, before, before, I, before I do it, I have to think it and I have to believe it. Like, how else can you ever get there if you don't truly believe it? Like, you can't half-step it and get there. So that idea that, hey, you know what? And, and, and Jim did a great job of putting that out there. Then it was on us as the assistant coaches because I would show some clips uh, going into that first year and say, okay, here's a really good Notre Dame team that you guys lost to in the, in the, in the last couple minutes. Here are five plays to change the game, right? It's a third and two in the fourth quarter. Your antenna has to go up, Right. You got every third and two the rest of the game, but third and two in the fourth quarter, this one now can win the game. So it's just just changing that mentality and instilling these guys with the confidence um, to go out there and do that. And then, uh, of course, that year was 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 the, the second most important thing. The first most important thing is when Jim uttered those words. That was the first most because it shook up a lot of people and it, started, it made them say, "Okay, you know, I think we're going to follow this crazy guy. He may have something, to do, right?" Uh, and then we went into the number one ranked uh, team at USC and one uh, and uh, Barnburn um, with a, with a, a great catch at the end of the game for a touchdown. And these group of guys that five, six months before that were kind of taking short steps and maybe we'll follow them to like, Oh my God, this is, this can happen here. So that, you know, we didn't have a winning season that year, but we cultivated that feeling and, I'll, I'll finish with this because, first of all, the people there have to believe, but then you can start stoking people after that because after that game, um, actually before that game, I was the East Coast recruiter. I would go out with my little Stanford shirt on, and people would say, oh, is that North Carolina State? Like, no, there's no NC. It's just the, just the S. Oh, okay. And someone would say, is that Stanford? Stanford, Connecticut? No, it's Stanford <laughs> with a P. And not Stanford either. It's Stanford. Um, after that game, after that one game, sometimes you have to get a little lucky. That game was not a nationally televised game. But the, the East Coast games finished early, and the, some of the later West Coast games hadn't started yet. So everybody got turned into that game in the fourth quarter. So across the nation, people saw that, that big game of this, this underdog team beating the number one team. That next spring, oh, you're the coach from Stanford. Wow, that was a big game, <laughs> right? So now those recruiting doors open because we did something special. We did something that hit from coast to coast. Um, and people started to believe, like, oh, man, I can go there and get a great education and beat USC? Uh, it, so that that's kind of where that momentum started. Yeah, and I think as a personal, I was playing college football and being a college football fan, there's two programs I think that I just love. Is one is yours and the other one's Northwestern. 
smart, tough, and they play as a team. I think you say that. And I think that is a difference maker, which is a lot of the underdog approach to a certain extent is where you value, I think, in recruiting. You, you said it's actually you have it really definitive, even though you you recruit across the country. I'd love for you to touch upon your recruiting that you're looking. There's three non-negotiables. It's the Stanford way. Academics, uh, they have to have the athletic ability and have the character. Can you touch upon because obviously great players have to make great plays, right? We All the coaches we've had on here, there is no doubt. There's a resounding theme, just like in our business. You have to have great players, just like we have to have great employees that go out and make things happen. So explain how you've recruited the Stanford way. So it's a couple couple components to that. I agree. What you just said is everything to me. Um, the most important thing I'm in charge of as the head coach is the environment and the most the biggest effect I have on the environment is who I let into the environment. So um, high character individuals means I have to worry less about the crap that goes around young people, right? If I have high character individuals, I don't have as many distractions to deal with. Uh, if I've got guys that are high academic, then they're going to get into school. Like we're not lowering our academic standards for anybody. Um, so they have to have that to get into school. And that helps them also, I think, be motivated to do to be more than football players. And I don't want to just coach guys that just want to be football players and nothing else. Like I, I want that other component. Um, and then the athletic ability. Yeah, if they can't throw and catch, then they can't come, right? That's just this is bottom line. I don't care if they're high character, great kids that you want your daughter to marry, uh, and and they're great students. If they can't play football, they need to go someplace else. So it's really those three things. And when you have those three things. You have to be okay with, and this is hard, and, and a lot of previous coaches before Coach Harbaugh didn't, weren't able to do this and say, I have to be willing to be less than 85 scholarships almost every year because I might not be able to find 20 guys every year that can fit in those parameters. I might have 25 scholarships open, but I can only find 18 guys. So now the way that you recruit your, your non-scholarship athletes is as important as your scholarship athletes. If we can find tough, smart guys that know how to do – how to We've, we've had a, probably on average at least between one and two scholarship uh, kids, uh, non-scholarship kids become scholarship kids because uh, they earn that opportunity. So uh, that's it. And, and this year was probably the busy, busy, biggest example of our way it works. Nobody, maybe outside of San Jose State, faced more difficulty uh, than we did during the course of this year. Right? We lost our starting quarterback to a, to a false positive for a week and a half and it was barely able to come back for the second game. Uh, we, we, we got kicked out of our County, um, had to go practice someplace in training camp, had to, had to travel the last three weeks of the season, um, not coming back, you know, putting guys on buses and, and hotels and trying to find sure they have enough food. And we finished the season with a four game win streak. You don't do that with smart kids and, and athletic kids. If they're not high character kids, if they're not good people that work hard and understand the parameters and find a way to be successful within the parameters that they're given. There wasn't a lot of complaining. There wasn't a lot of, man, we're getting screwed. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. Like, Hey, this is the opportunity we have. Let's take advantage of it. So that, that, that bringing in the high character kids, they, they allow you to handle the difficult things that happen in a game, in a season, in life. Um, and, and then now on top of all of that, you only get to play six months out of the year. The other six months, if you don't have high character people, 
oh my gosh, you're kicking guys off the team, you're bailing guys out of jail, you know, you're, you're suspending guys, you have, a, you know, instead of saying, hey, gosh, what are you studying? What do you, what's, what's your internship in? Oh, I'm interning with Condoleezza Rice. I'm interning with this doctor. Like, those are the guys that we have. So we enjoy being around these guys, uh, not just for them to play for us, but in the offseason. And we love being around them and, and doing things with them. Yeah, and oh, by the way, hold on real quick. Two first-round draft picks were both engineers, I believe, or engineering de- uh, degrees, David DeCastro and Andrew Luck. So right. you can be a really good football player, and this is what I love. You can be a really excellent person, a football player, and a great mind. And I think Stanford is just showing that. My, I think my question is, so we were close. Um, Marcus Freeman is, is a close friend of mine from, from high school days and whatnot, and we just saw him. And he talked about, it's just like, you know, what's the difference in recruiting at Notre Dame? He's like, just that pool is so much smaller. So for the average listener, being able to go after that smaller pool of kids and then to identify, how do you know that that kid is a good character kid? What are some of the techniques or strategies that you put in place? Because I do our internal recruiting here for our company. We have, a, you know, upward of 100 employees and trying to find a good character person. Yeah, like... It's like that girl you got on the first date with. She's great the first date. She's even great the first couple of weeks. Six months in, you're like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> well, Coach Shaw might not have been in that situation, but anyway. <laughs> it, 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 it's not easy, um, but it's also the advantage of having a small pool. Right. Um, you're getting to know these guys better. You're getting to know the people around them better, right? And, and even through this difficult pandemic time, having Zoom calls with the family, with the parents, like hearing stories, et cetera. Um, I'm big, and I've told my coaches this, like there's certain things that you're listening for when you're talking to a, to a coach, when you're talking to a counselor. Um, you know, you're look, you're, you, you want to serve up kind of open-ended questions. You want to hear leadership. You want to hear toughness. Uh, you know, you know they, hey, I heard you guys lost your, your rivalry game. You know, how did, how did that go? Like, and you want to hear, well, the kid that you're recruiting, he's the one that, that brought everybody back. He's the one that led everybody back. He's the one that, or that was his best game when everybody else was playing poorly and he was listening to his teammates. So if you want to hear these stories, um, one of the things that, that is, you know, when we can go out on the road again, I used to love doing is I would let the coach know that I'm coming and may or may not let the counselor know. But when I, when the counselor didn't know and I would walk into the counselor's office and she would see Stanford, she'd say, Oh, I know who you're here to see. Right. Uh-huh. She's like, yeah, this, 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 this guy's in my office all the time. He's talking about his classes. He's talking about his future. He's not just a football player like this kid. I love this kid. I want to help this kid get to Stanford. That's when you know, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. When the when the when the janitor says, "Oh, you're coming to get our boy, huh?" Right? They they they've identified the Stanford kid, not just me. Like they've identified him before I ever got there. Uh, there's a great story about um, uh, recruiting uh, EJ Smith. Now Emmett Smith's son, and you know all this stuff, and going to the school, and a and a guy who's a former military man. Um, is was working at the school, and he said, "I knew Stanford was going to come because the way I look at Stanford, if I was putting together a group of people to go do what I used to do in the military, he said EJ would be the first guy that I would pick." So, like those are the things that you want to hear when you're when you're walking on campus. Um, but if you go in the counselor's office and she's like, um, "Which student is this again?" <laughs> right? Then he hasn't been in the counselor's office. He's probably not academically oriented. He might have good grades, but he's kind of just kind of getting by. That's not the guy, right? <laughs> yeah. you, you want people, you want people coming out of the classrooms and saying, "Oh my gosh, I hope you get him. I hope he goes to Stanford." So uh, that that identification process is not just on us; 
you want to see, you want to touch those people around them and the things that you're looking for, or they tell you who that person is. You don't have to wait for them to sell themselves to you. Yeah. And speaking of coach Freeman, good friend of ours. And we texted him last night. We're like, Hey man, we want to stoke the fire here. He goes, man, he goes, coach Shaw is one of the best coaches in the country. Don't, I'm not saying a word. I said, (laughs) he goes, I got my hands full November 27th. I'm just focused on, on trying to get my new uh, feet underneath it. But anyway, I think that's a resounding thing we've heard in preparation to some of our other coaches is, you know, nothing but respect and how you do business, how you recruit and how you develop more importantly, uh, student athletes. So as we, uh, I think it's about time we end our, every episode with some uh, hot questions. Usually they're not very hot or rapid fire, quick, I should rapid say. Fire, yeah. So let's, uh, if you got a few minutes, we'll we'll, uh, we'll throw a couple your way. Let's do it. So wait, for, well, for our one question is we're we're from uh, we're we're based out of Ohio, a hotbed of high school football here in Cincinnati. We would like we're I think we're a big fan of yours. We got to figure out how to get some Ohio kids to uh, Stanford. So I'm from Granville High School. He's from. Shamana Julian Eagles. I don't know if you've ever had kids <laughs> from Granville or Shamana, but coach, I did coach D two football for a few years, so I can recruit. I can recruit Ohio if you if you need me to. I got your back there. <laughs> so yeah, we got we got to get you uh, some Ohio kids, Coach Shaw. What do we got to do? We've, we've, we've had a few, but it's it's been a while. It's been about five years. We're okay. we're, we're back at it again, though. Okay, we're, okay. We're gonna find right. some. Yeah, right. we got we got some we got some good kids in Cincinnati, and uh, that's where we're based in Ohio. So yeah, we'll. We'll definitely proudly wear the S. And we had we were actually talking about colleges. We had the Miami M, but we were Miami of Ohio. A lot of people thought we were Miami, Florida. So it was the same way. Like the S, probably people like you said on the East Coast was Syracuse, Stanford, Coach Hep, Stanford. Coach Hep used to say, I'm going to get that OH taken off the um, at end of our name on the ESPN ticker. I'm like, you're not going to win that battle, Coach. <laughs> <laughs> the U's got it. So if you're ever going against Miami, Florida in recruiting, you can tell the recruit, hey, Miami of Ohio was a school before Miami, Florida was actually a city. That's a fact. So just, just you if you need that. But anyway, all right, let's there get into the, the hot topic here. So you've had the chance, um, you know, of working with a bunch of guys and whatnot. But, like, Deion Sanders, Tim Brown, and, and McCaffrey, who wins in a race? Uh, Deion Sanders wins running backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and he would, and he would probably do it too. <laughs> and, I thought and, you would and, say McCaffrey would at least be in the race. <laughs> oh man! So, I love Christian to death. There's so many things that Christian is the best in the world at. But well, I watched Deion Sanders. My dad was at his pro day, or he was at the combine when he ran and left right after he ran. He ran that four two four, whatever <laughs> it was. I watched Deion at at the Cowboys, and 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 still in his prime, but not when he was young, but in his prime. I watched him be bored in NFL games. Mm. He was bored. He would run half speed with every receiver in, in the league except for Randy Moss. Randy Moss, he had to run full speed. Everybody else, he could run half speed, three-quarter speed. And what he used to do, and he would talk about it, he would just – he had to bait quarterbacks because they would stay away from him. He'd have to give some room and say, hey, look, he's open. Hey, look, he's throwing to him. He's open. And then as soon as you start that throwing motion, boom, he just takes off. So – yeah, I, I saw that guy. I think the only guy that would be an interesting race would be him in his prime and Bo Jackson in his prime. Okay. So that that would be that would be the race. Okay. Yeah, and those that that don't know, these are players that uh, coach was around. Um, also, another player you were around in Baltimore was the great Ray Lewis. Do you think, speaking of Ray Lewis, is he the best linebacker to ever play, or who would you what would you say there? Uh, that's a tough one for me. Um, 
I don't think a guy, there's one guy that doesn't get enough credit but needs to be in that mix, Luke Keekley. Mm-hmm. What he did at Carolina uh, is on par, I think, with, with Ray. Um, I think what Ray is, Ray is, Ray is the, the best big personality um, because not only was he great sideline to sideline, I mean, at 255 pounds, sideline to sideline every single play. I watched this guy at practice. He decided over two-week period to show people what effort was. He said, I'm going to tag off on every single play. Okay, great. You throw a 40-yard bomb, Ray Lewis sprints down there, tags the receiver, and then sprints back and sets the huddle for the next play. Like, that's insane. Yeah. And he did it every play, every practice. And I dare you to try to get him to come out. You can't – no, he's going to play every single play of practice, and he's going to show everybody how it's supposed to be done. And that boy – hey, boy, hey, boy. Like, that voice – Yeah. That voice is throughout practice, and – the coaches get motivated. The players get motivated. So for me, it's not just the fact that he was great, which he was great, right? He was one of the best ever, possibly the most influential person to play football. Because I'll, the last thing I'll say about Ray, I got there and we were off season and our offense was, was really run the defense ragged the whole off season. Ray was training down in Miami, Miami, Florida. Uh, Ray was trained down in Miami, and he came up for the mini camp, the mandatory mini camp, and we completed about the first five passes. And I heard Ray say, "They don't complete another pass." Everybody on defense ratcheted up to ten. We didn't complete another pass. So the great ones are not just great; they make everybody else around them great, and that's what I think Ray is the best ever at. Yeah, and I, the funny thing, I real quick, more. Luke Keekley from St. X High School in Cincinnati. We yep. actually had the St. X Bombers. Uh, Steve Specht is a great coach, won the Division One state one championship. One of the best ever. Yeah, he, he was on our podcast, a uh, good friend of ours as well. So shout out. I love the Luke Keekley. He's actually going to come on the podcast. So yep. we'll have to clip that and send it to Luke and say, hey, Coach Shaw, give, showing mass give, respect. Give him, a, give him a hard time for giving us the stiff arm late in recruiting. Just give him a hard okay. time about that. Okay, okay. yeah. It, it went down to the wire. We thought he was coming, and he gave us a stiff arm. I, I love him to death, but it would have been nice if he wore the cardinal. Okay. All right. I'm going to make no that. Doubt. We'll make that. No doubt. So I got two more. I love asking um, dad advice from coaches because of your perspective of working with young men or women, you know, as a career. Kyle has a five-year-old and a three-year-old. Soon to be. Soon yep. to be three, and I have a five-year-old and soon to be four-year-old. What dad advice would you give us two young pops? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and, and, and coaches, coaching is tough because our hours are just insanity. Um, just always craft time where they're the focal point and let them feel that, right? Because sometimes we do it, but they don't know it. Like, let them know, like, I'm looking at you in your face. Like, this is for you. What do you need? Let's have fun. Let's get on the floor. Let's roll around. Let's go outside and get dirty. Um, let me turn my cell phone off for like an hour. So I just get this time with you because sitting here with a, a, a soon to be 18 year old, a soon to be 16 year old and, a, and an 11 year old, like, gosh, you know, those, some of those moments were too small, but I'm glad that I still had those moments. So making sure that you have those moments uh, with, with your kids together, but also with them individually. Love it. Wow. Love it. That's a fantastic advice. All right. This is how we always conclude. 
and we'll let you get rolling so we, we don't miss anybody on this recruiting trail. Um, so before you answer this question, you have to agree to help us hopefully make it happen. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do. I, lo- I, lo- I, lo- I love to always wait on the response. I always Don't worry, response. it's not too it's bad. It's not that, that bad. Um, who is one person you think we should have as a guest on the Underdog Podcast? Ooh. Uh, with the Underdog mantra, I would say this, and some people may not see it initially. I would say Christian McCaffrey. Hmm. Christian McCaffrey. Because okay. here's, here's, here's a guy, right? He's He was uh, son of Ed McCaffrey, son of a great Bronco, um, but he was a quote-unquote undersized white running back. And the and, and people may not have sympathy for him, which is fine. He doesn't look for it. But for him to have to gain respect every place he went, and he walks around with that chip on his shoulder. He's brilliant. He's smart. He's a great person but you won't find a more determined human being on this planet. And that's part of it is that, Oh, you're good, but you're not as good as this guy. You know, I mean, he had to be recruited in the same class as Leonard Fournette and all these guys that were five stars. And he kept saying, I'm as good as those guys. And people kept saying, no, no, you know, certain places that would just look at him. Oh man, you'd make a great safety. Like safety. Like, have you seen what I'm doing on the football field? Right. But to, to kind of battle that, that little undersized white running back deal, um, he lives every day with the underdog mentality. No matter how much money he's made, no matter how many records he's broken, college or pro, he approaches every workout, every practice, every game as an underdog. Love it. Wow. Love it. Man, that makes me motivated to get, get him on. Wow. That's, I, I, you know, you hear things, but to hear obviously a guy that helped develop them, that's, Makes me want to be uh, even a bigger fan of his. That's no that's incredible. It's great to see you. He's a good human being for sure. Coach, man, it's been great. Appreciate you taking, like I said earlier, appreciate you taking time, you know, out of your busy schedule with everything going on and uh, joining myself and Kyle here on the Underdog Podcast. Um, you know, you're a national brand, but we would love for you to just still shout it out. How can people follow, you know, yourself and, and the Stanford brand uh, on social media? Yeah, I, I, I'm on Twitter um, out of obligation. I'm not the biggest social media guy. <laughs> uh, but you have to have it in order to recruit nowadays. Yeah. I'm not on Instagram. I don't do any of that other stuff. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, and, and I mainly retweet Stanford football stuff, Stanford athletics things, some some things out there in culture, but not a whole lot. Um, I really try to focus on my team and, and, and my family. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Thanks, Coach. Appreciate yeah. all your time. Best of luck. And uh, thanks, guys. We'll be rooting for you. Good luck to you, you so much. All right, take care. All right, we'll see you. Thanks.